Hey, everybody. want to welcome you again to the Before You Quit podcast, where we want to bring courage and perspective when serving gets hard. And man, does it get hard sometimes. That is why we do what we do here on these Before You Quit podcasts. My name is Mitch Schultz, and I'm your host. I'm also the director of a ministry called Fruitful Vine Ministry. Uh, Hey, welcome. Uh, Let me start with a question, maybe a bit tongue-in-cheek. I hope you will take it that way. But what if during this COVID-19 season, uh, by the way, I think now we're going to look back at this years down the road and just call it 2020. So we have 9-11, we have Pearl Harbor, we have our ways of describing different large uh, traumatic events. And so that's my prediction. It's going to be just called 2020. Mark that down. Come back and let me know that you agree with me when you see it happen. Um, but during, what if during this this 2020 season, uh, while the church has been <clears throat> on a break, hiatus, fasting from meeting corporately, that the antagonists in the church have had a huge change of heart and are now determined to come back fully supporting the pastor and the church leaders? Well, I'm sure we hope this would be the case, but I would imagine that the pastor and church leaders are uh, bracing themselves, or maybe hopefully not thinking about it, but will in time, they'll be under attack, under stress, under criticism again. I'm sure for many pastors, this break has been a reprieve from ongoing attack and criticism from what our guest today refers to as hero persecutors. Uh, similar to how Satan left Jesus to tempt him again for an opportune time, I have no doubt that this respite, this break that the pastor has had from attack will resume again. So what does the church need to do and understand when the body becomes a toxic environment and how, uh, how can the church even nurture a climate where the work of the gospel thrives, uh, even where there is tension, even when there is conflict? Well, I have the privilege today to talk about that with Dr. Chris Creech. He's the author of a book called Toxic Church. And uh, let me just tell you really quickly a little bit about him before we jump into that interview. Uh, Chris and his wife, Faith, have been in ministry for over 40 years. And uh, during this time, they've served in pastoral ministry for over 28 years in five churches, including one church they planted in Toronto. Uh, Chris has his uh, MDiv and PhD from Southwestern Seminary. Uh, He's taught at seminaries in Singapore and Malaysia as a resident faculty and adjunct faculty at other seminaries in Asia, Europe, North America, South America. And uh, currently they are serving Pinnacle Ministries as Director of Pastoral Mission Church Health and as adjuncts in several Asian and U.S. seminaries. So that's who he is, and he's sticking to his story. And I I know you're going to benefit greatly from this conversation that I had with Dr. Chris Creech. Let's jump into it right now. All right, I am speaking to someone who is living in the mountains of Colorado, uh, Chris Creech. Thank you for taking the time to be part of the Before You Quit podcast. Oh, Mitch, appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. It's uh, not quite uh, spring here yet. We still get a little freezing temperatures. We enjoy it up here at 10,000 feet. Oh, wow, wow. Well, yeah. <clears throat> I, I won't talk then about the 70, 80 degrees we've been getting down here in oh. <laughs> northeast Georgia. <laughs> well, hey, let's, uh, let's jump in. We, we've recently gotten to know each other. Um, in fact, the, 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 the connection here was an email I received from a friend in, in Minnesota who uh, had received, I think, a, a promotion for a, a book that you wrote. It's not actually the book we're going to talk about today. It's the second book for that. But the, so I ended up ordering the first book you wrote called Toxic Church. And Mm -hmm. uh, as you and I talked over the phone, I I mentioned to you that my last church was a toxic church. In fact, I feel like today might be therapeutic for me. So in a sense, I'm, I feel like I'm sitting talking online with a counselor. And uh, so there'll be some processing here. Uh, But tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you've done, how you landed, where you are now, what you're doing now. Uh, Mitch, we've been in ministry for about another month. It'll be 46 years, June of 74. Is that right? Yes. June of 74, we began uh, began our ministry. Part of it was uh, involved in in, uh, parachurch and youth pastorate, but the majority of it, about 30 years, was in uh, pastoral ministry or church planting. And for the last 15, 16 years, it has been missionary work. I am now supposed to be semi-retired. That never works. 
-hmm. because the reality is <clears throat> the call of God is strong and we feel very much a part of uh, God's work in yeah. helping. Yeah, I asked you before, before we recorded, I asked you if, if you're continuing to do what you do because you're passionate about it and you unequivocally said yes. Well, as you know, <clears throat> the situation in the U.S. is worsening. Um, and I am concerned about uh, not only what's going on in the U.S., but also in Asia, where we had a, a long, considerable ministry in many countries in Asia. We see these problems worsening as time goes on, and uh, perhaps the prophetic leaning as to what's coming in the future. Mm -hmm. Well, when you say that, you, you are referring to a problem. What, what is the problem, and what are you burdened about that you're seeing that you indicate will get worse? Sure. When we were in Asia... We began, I was teaching Old Testament survey, and at the same time, I had been asked by the head of the seminary in Singapore if I would be the, the uh, chaplain of the, uh, of the seminary, which I agreed to do. And I discovered that a lot of Asians were hiding their little secrets about the pain that they endured at the hands of people who, I call in my book, hero persecutors. Sometimes they're mm -hmm. called antagonists. Uh, Lloyd Rediger calls them clergy killers. They're all basically the same person. They're individuals who uh, tend to validate themselves on their basis of uh, finding problems in a Christian organization and correcting those problems, usually harming people quite dramatically as they try to correct those problems. So I began as th at the hands of the seminary being asked to teach a course called Relationship Building for Life and Ministry. And that turned into this first book, The Toxic Church, and then leading to the second book, The Antidote. I would say God's providence has been at work throughout our lives. And uh, can I share with you something about our, our history? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to, love to get to know you a little bit as, we, as okay. we launch into this. When we first went into pastoral ministry, and this was a few years after I'd been in ministry, uh, I began to notice something that really was a shock to me. I was uh, quite aggressive evangelistically, and so the churches that I pastored were growing quite significantly. And I noticed in a couple of cases there would be individuals who, as the church would grow and as the Lord would bless our ministry, <clears throat> these individuals would begin to uh, take, uh, take it upon themselves to correct me unjustly, I might add. And there was no, no limit to what they might do. I discovered these people were quite capable of uh, drawing a group together, lying about the pastor. And in most of these cases, well, in all but one, I survived quite well. I went to the Lord in prayer, and in a couple of cases, the Lord physically moved them from the area. And when this individual would leave, everything would calm down. And in one case, uh, I did not survive. But in all these situations, we came to the understanding that there's something going on in the church in which there are people who are quite dangerous who can be involved in the church's ministry, and they're never, not, not, I won't say never, frequently are not recognized as being dangerous people within the church. So or if they we, are recognized, there might not be the courage or the, the, the wisdom or know-how on how to, how to approach it, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit later sure. in terms of the biblical process of when there is uh, antagonism in the church or people that are bent on harming uh, mm -hmm. We're instructed how to deal with those things, so there is there is an aspect of of needing to be obedient as a as a church body, church leadership to to address these things. But uh, yeah, we'll keep that there and come back to it in, in a little bit. Um, what we also discovered is when we started raising support to go overseas, and this is now about uh, 15, 16 years ago, uh, I realized this problem was not unique to to me. I started talking mm -hmm. to pastors anticipating they were going to help by supporting us. And when they realized the years I'd had in pastoral ministry, they would, I, I describe it, they would start bleeding all over me. What I mean by that is they'd tell me their horror stories. Sure. And I realized what we'd been through was nothing compared to what they had been for, through. Uh, you did read one of those stories in the first chapter of Toxic Church. There are a couple more of them in the preface of The Antidote. And in one case in America, we literally intervened in a young man's life when he was near taking his own life. Mm. And in Asia, we saw that repetitively over and over again. Asian culture is a shame-based culture, most of them, as you know. You grew up in Asia. And um, what happens there is because of the fact that uh, someone is, is, is going to bring shame upon their church or their family, if they leave a ministry, people tend to stay in ministries where there are abusive people harming them, and the only escape route then becomes suicide. 
And the reality is we've run into this a number of times, particularly with Korean and Chinese, I might add, but uh, with others as well. It's very common for us to run into these situations. And so we feel that our ministry is driven by the need to address these issues for people and in ministry who are getting harmed. So your, your book, Toxic Church, if, if you were to sum it up, let's say you're sitting in an airplane and you have it open, they ask you, hey, what's that book about? How would you, how would you sum it up in a, in a couple sentences? Well, this book describes both Toxic Church and The Antidote, a person who develops an addictive personality in which they are trying to harm other people. They don't recognize it as that way. They see themselves as being called by God or called, if they're not Christians, just simply a person with unique ability to uh, discern people who are doing things that are wrong and then correcting those people. It also explores people who will enable them by not doing anything to stop them. The book then addresses how this happens and how biblically to prevent it from occurring and how to address it once it does occur. That's yeah, more than so, any sense or two, but it's a, that's basically yeah. Sure. So talk, talk, talk a little bit again about the burden that led you to write this and even a little bit more about your own personal history, because in the longer you've been in ministry, the more you're observing and you mm-hmm. even noted that you, you believe this is a problem that's increasing, that that's expanding. Um, but if you were, if you were, to, you've had enough time to really look at this, to, to study it, to teach it. If you were to isolate what, you know, one or two uh, main burdens that you have, what would it be? The primary burden and the big thing I hear from pastors who are in abusive ministries, I hear this statement regularly, I stayed too long. Mm. Now, there's a couple of reasons people stay too long. And if you stay in an abusive situation which you're being harmed, your family's being harmed, uh, the reality is you've become an enabler of the person who's persecuting you. And it, is, it was strange to me to note that successful pastors are more often the object of these attacks and are those who just simply sit back and let the church kind of run itself. Uh, it's also interesting to note that older pastors frequently will go into the same type of situation where they, they could be, as an example, I have one friend who uh, uh, just attended one of our classes here in Colorado, by the way, one friend who had been the pastor of a church for 28 years, and after 28 years of very successful ministry, he was run out by a man who'd recently joined the church, uh, presented himself as a very uh, acceptable candidate for leadership, entered into leadership, and then went about the task of ridding the church of the pastor. He did a good job. This is common. We need to learn. Here's what drives me. Pastors need to learn how to recognize these people and how to address these situations and how, very importantly, to recognize if they are not equipped to handle the situation, when to move. Uh, In other words, the situation is not going to be changed by a magic wand, but it will be changed as pastors recognize how this happens and how they can address these situations. And I guess my my great concern is, is that things like this are simply not addressed in most seminaries or Bible colleges. It's just not addressed. So people go into the churches really green, not understanding what's going to happen, as was I when I entered into pastoral ministry. Well, I work with a denomination, I would say, even in our, in our districts, as, as they're broken down, the, the number of opportunities that are there to address a multiple, uh, you know, uh, set of topics, uh, workshops, retreats, whatever it might be, conferences. Uh, I don't recall ever hearing uh, a workshop that addresses how to deal with difficult people. And, um, you know, I shared with you, uh, I think on the phone last week, and maybe alluded it to it a little bit before we recorded today that it's been uh, a good eight years since we were, we left a, a very toxic church. And, uh, and I still shake, uh, you know, there's, there's deep emotions that still come when I, when I think about what happened there, but it, it, it baffled me how, how ugly people could be, how uh, people that uh, are actually respected and, and admired by other people they're like, am I, am, I, am I the one that's crazy here? I mean, I'm seeing something totally different than everybody else. Um, in fact, one, one young guy who was working with our youth group was, was going around saying, I could destroy this church if I wanted to. And, um, and he was motivated to destroy the church. And I thought, how, how is it possible that people can, can have, you know, seemingly uh, they're, they're believers, they're, they claim to be believers, they have, uh, you know, 
network of family who are committed to the church. Um, how does that happen? I mean, what? So a lot of a lot of your book is really studying the the nature of those people, the 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 contributors. You know what what has happened in their own life that that they're looking for a place like this, even uh, whether mm-hmm. consciously or unconsciously. Uh, so yeah, expand a little bit on that because that's a that's a rich part of your book. The the issue um, is actually one which is as old as the fall. In the second book, I go into much more depth than this, but the issues is, is related to the fall, and it has to do with a simple statement, which is three times in the Old Testament in the Pentateuch. The sins of the fathers follow themselves unto the children to the third and fourth generation. And as we look at Genesis 2 through 4, we can see that progression through three primary men, two who are commonly regarded. The last one is, uh, is obviously often disregarded just another name in the Bible, but he's he. First was Adam, then there's Cain, and then there's a fellow down the line called Lamech. He's in Genesis chapter 4, and he, uh, you know, the, the interesting case is I always say, well, Cain became a murderer, Lamech became a mass murderer, and he also became a polygamist. And in that process of those seven generations, there's something going on in which addictive personalities are formed, addicted to the process of doing two things. Number one, finding my value on the basis of my ability to control other people. Uh, you said this young man uh, said, well, I could destroy this church if I want. That's a control statement if I ever heard one. Mm-hmm. He's saying, look, I'm the king of the world. And where did he get that? He inherited those tendencies because as he was growing up, he developed Minerth and Meyer in their books, uh, Love is a Choice, Happiness is a Choice, Others. Minerth and Meyer are uh, counselors in Dallas and, and teachers at Dallas Theological Seminary. They point out something called the abuse cycle, and they point out that through this process of one generation to the next, addictive behaviors develop through a process called the abuse cycle. In this addictive behavior, these individuals really do come to see themselves as God's chosen agents to correct and discipline and correct the church. And of course, since their primary purpose is to gain a great, great deal of recognition, who stands in the way? It's always going to be a key leader, and certainly the pastor would fit into that situation too, because you, as the pastor, are taking his recognition away. So he's got to prove he's better than you. He's got to attack you. He's got to come after you. This is all unconscious. It's addictive behavior. It doesn't go away. And one of the reasons conflict resolution often does not work is that with people who are just simply uh, involved in slight disagreements, conflict resolution works great. But when you get to one of these addictive behavior patterns, yeah. it's not going to go away. Yeah, it's the, the only come yeah, back later. Yeah, the, would you say the only solution is is someone has to go, They're, or or at least confronted with the opportunity for repentance and and restoration? And often doesn't get there, does it? Well, the key, of course, it takes time. Mm-hmm. Pastors have to learn how to confront. In the process of talking to over 60 pastors for the first book, I discovered there were several pastors I met who really were good at confronting. Mm-hmm. They were able to handle these situations, but the great majority were kind of like I was. We didn't know how to handle these situations, and so we didn't. And any, any parent knows, if you let a child do something wrong long mm-hmm. enough, guess mm-hmm. what? They get worse. They don't get yeah, better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, there, one, one particular uh, moment for me that was so revealing and frightening. Uh, uh, I think a year or two in, into this ministry, I was there seven years, um, and uh, there was a lot of unsettledness. In fact, early on, within a couple weeks of of coming to this church, uh, an old man who I knew from the very beginning would be one that I would have challenging uh, relationship with. Uh, but in fact, there was, there was a, a, a situation where he rolled down his window and he, he simply said, Mitch, people are unsettled. People are unsettled. And, um, this church, four to 500 people. So I'm thinking, okay, I've been here two weeks and people are unsettled. And when I'd say, well, unsettled about what, uh, well, they're just unsettled. So it was always vague. And I remember you do talk about this in the book, a lot of vagueness, vagary. Um, and then about a year later, um, uh, a man, uh, who I respected well, very wealthy man, also an elder. I think he tried to keep himself out of everything, which mm-hmm. wasn't helpful. But he said to me, he said, Mitch, if you're, and let's just call this guy Pete, not his name, but let's call this the old man that rolled his window down and said this to me. 
this, um, this elder wealthy man said, Mitch, if you're going to succeed here in this church, you need to get along with Pete. And, uh, and it was a showdown. <laughs> you know, I remember thinking, and I, I said to him, I said, well, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Uh, that, that, and he wasn't, he wasn't challenging. He just, I think he was just making an observation. He was uh, in, in some weird way, objectively just stating the reality and he was right. Mm-hmm. And in the end, the, the demise of, of our, our ministry there, uh, really came down to this guy continuing to stir things up, building things up. Uh, to the point where something had to be done. And what my wife and I did is we went to the district superintendent and, uh, and we said, we, you know, we can't continue this way. There's this uh, pockets of rebellion that keep surfacing. You know, I felt like it was a carnival game where you hit the little animal popping right, yeah. up and you, mm-hmm. you hit one and you're satisfied. And then suddenly there's another one. And you're just like, as soon as you get one, one hit, there's another one that pops up. That was, that's what it felt like for, for seven mm-hmm. years. And, um, and so we went to the district superintendent and said, you know, we can't continue this way. And I had a proposal. I, I, in fact, I, I felt like I, I was handling it as, as well as I could, getting advice from people. And, um, and the district superintendent came in, and uh, rather than dealing with the issues, he, he said after a couple of weeks of studying this, he said, it might be best if you, if you move on. And uh, so that, that was the approach, and that often is the approach. And you, I think you talk about that, don't you, with district leaders? Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes the, you know, we choose the easy way uh, out of this. And, and then it leaves the church uh, to continue repeating the pattern. Um, anyway, I said a lot there without necessarily having a question. Yeah, I would share with you one of the things that I commonly ran into was the problem of the district leader Different denominations have a different uh, terminology, but basically they are uh, denominational leaders who are called upon to help out. Very seldom, I won't say never, but very seldom are they really a help, and there's some strong reasons for that. The essence of the problem is is that we're looking for the approval of men rather than just living in the approval of Jesus, which he's already given to us. Mm. And this is something which is very inherent in ministry. Many people go into ministry without even realizing. We don't know this has happened. We've inherited the sins of the fathers. What does that cause us to do? Look for approval from our father. Look for the approval of people around us. Looking for the approval of men rather than living in the approval of Jesus. Now, denominational leaders are there for a reason. Oftentimes they get there because they want to be there. And why do they want to be there? Well, sometimes it's really good reasons. And sometimes, without knowing it, they're there because they want the approval of men. Hmm. If they come into a troubled church where there are, let's say you've got this one fellow, I'm not talking just about you, but anybody, hmm. usually it's a small group. Some call it a cartel. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I love it. Well, it's made up of a primary antagonist and several enablers of the antagonists who go along with whatever they do because in the same way that the antagonists learn to value themselves on the basis of their ability to correct others, the enablers learn to value themselves on the basis of their ability to let other people do it. Hmm. So they let them get away with it. So a denominational leader comes into a church with a cartel. Usually it's about 10 people. can be more, can be less, but it's seldom more than 10% of the church no matter what the size of the church. And what happens is, is that denominational leader who is actually, without even realizing it, needing the validation of the approval of men. It's a John 12, 43 thing. They love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Therefore, they hid their believing in Jesus. This is the story of the Pharisees in John 12. Well, the same thing happens with the denominational leaders without even realizing it. Who is going to scream and yell the loudest? And who's the largest people? You've got that cartel. You got everybody else is standing around saying, huh, what problem? And then there's the poor pastor who has been stuck in the middle of this thing for a long time. And seldom does the pastor have anybody else who sides with him. It does happen. It does happen. It happened in a case I was in. But the reality is usually the pastor's alone. So who's the denominational leader going to listen to if their secret unconscious goal is to gain the approval of men? They're going to listen to the loudest voices and the more numerous voices give you an illustration about that. My father-in-law will not mind me sharing this. My father was a denominational leader of a uh, significant denomination here in the U.S., and he was in the position of a district super for 24 years. In that time, after reading my book, the first book, 
he came to me, literally tears streaming down his mm. face. Chris, I can't believe it. He says, I read mm. your book. And he said, I realized I didn't handle these situations well. Invariably, I'd look at this problem and see it's a huge thing. It can't be sorted out. The easiest solution, ask the pastor to leave. He says, I did that many times. And he said the reality was it didn't solve the problem because the next pastor would come in and sooner or later the problem would arise again. Because statistically, if a pastor is forced out of a church, 66% of the time the next pastor will also be forced out. So it, it doesn't go away. But oftentimes denominational leaders just simply either psychologically can't handle it or they have not been trained how to handle it because this is not addressed. Yeah. Or, or if they do address it, it's, it, it's very time-consuming. It, oh, it's very time-consuming. It, it's going to yeah. take a lot of work, yeah. Yeah, right. you, you, you do talk about the impact on, on the pastor when these things happen. Uh, you know, it is, it is a PTSD uh, mm-hmm. sort of experience. Um, you know, it, it's, it's hard for them. Uh, you, you talk about difficult for them to recover their dreams or their calling. And uh, I know in my case, it was redirected. Uh, you know, in fact, if we, I think I shared this with you that if I had not gone through what I went through, I would not have the, the empathy and the deep understanding of what pastors are going through that is enabling me to, uh, to, to speak out of my ministry to people that are, that are going through tough times. So in some way, I'm thankful for it. But, uh, uh, but yeah, you can see the, the woundedness that's there and and um, the hard work of realigning yourself to the call, being obedient to Christ in suffering. Um, so what, what are you seeing? Do you see a lot of pastors recover? Do you help pastors pick up the pieces? Uh, Mitch, I really appreciate that question. It's uh, quite significant because of the nature of what happens to a pastor who's under attack or anyone in ministry who's under attack. Best way to understand it is to recognize what happens as the result of the fall. In Genesis 2 through 4, we see a continued process, as I mentioned previously, in which several generations become uh, increasingly more evil as time goes on. We have the illustration of Adam to Cain to Lamech. But the result of that process is, is that all of us being affected by the powers of the fall have come to believe that our value comes not on the basis of what we do, or rather not on the basis of who we are, but on the basis of what we can do. We all inherit this some more intensely than others, depending upon our backgrounds, but it's all part of our, our being. It's part of the fall. It is the essence of the fall. Now, what that means is, is that when a pastor or a missionary is serving, one of the things that happens to that individual is that in the nature of the confrontation which goes on and which the pastors attack, there's several stages. I actually go through these more in the book, The Antidote, but let me just highlight them here. Mm-hmm. It usually begins with an attack on various value judgments. In other words, unless there's some egregious sin, pastors aren't attacked because of something they've done wrong, uh, like stealing or immorality. They're attacked on little things, yeah. value judgments, things like, well, he's too strict, he's too undisciplined, he dresses above us, he dresses like a slob, he uses improper grammar. The list goes on and on and on, and all these things are merely value judgments. They're really not sin issues. But what the antagonist is attempting to do with these comments is to gain uh, a group of people around them who have common ingredients of, of dislike for pastors or anyone above them, and eventually what happens is the pastor becomes very reactive. This happens because these value judgments, they chafe at the very being of the pastor. Mm-hmm. Because we value ourselves on the basis of what we can do rather than who we are, if people start attacking everything we do, they slowly eliminate our complete sense of being. They eliminate our whole value system. It's so intense and so painful that eventually a pastor comes to the point in which he or a missionary or a woman in ministry, whoever it happens to be, these people eventually are so broken that they be, develop an incredible amount of depth of pain. What even makes it worse is, is that those who haven't been around to experience it don't get it. They don't understand it. Yeah. If you haven't been a pastor who's been through this, what I just described may sound very strange. Or you may see in a little bit of it, but not to a great extent. Once a pastor's been broken down over a period of weeks, months, or years, 
They are at the point where they have no sense of being. Their validity is gone, and the pain is very intense. And the strange thing is, is the people whom God would use to help a pastor in that situation simply don't understand. They don't get it. It seems unbelievable to them. And so they regard it as unbelievable, and they don't help the pastor in those situations. Yeah, and, and, and oftentimes the church might never know that there had been that kind of impact on the pastor because he either quits, moves on, and, um, you know, as we talked about uh, earlier, that uh, sometimes a district superintendent will just move him on. So the congregation never really fully understands the depth of the woundedness that, uh, that's occurred in the, in the pastor's life or the pastor's family. Um, and once you say that the, the the optimum healing would be from within that same community that had hurt him, that that's that's the best ideal. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, sure how that would be happens, the best ideal. Yeah, yeah. The problem is, is that the pastor can't really complain at that point. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's almost silly. Yeah. But these things build up over time, in which the pastor can't say anything right in the pulpit. He doesn't yeah. dress right. He doesn't talk right. He doesn't do anything right. He preaches too long. He preaches too short. His sermons are too much in depth. His sermons are too surface. Every single thing he does, and to take those kinds of comments to anyone who's in the has the ability to correct this situation seems rather silly. And so they don't they don't give help. Yeah. Because the pastor and you're and you're, well. you're suggesting too that there there are people, uh, sadly, within. A lot of churches, maybe most most churches, that will capitalize on that. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about that. In fact, I want to quote something that you wrote. Um, you you say that uh, could a prospective church member actually be looking for those who are similar to the dysfunctional members of his own or her family? Uh, what phenomena is occurring there? Because really, what you're suggesting, and I've always said this, I believe this is true, that people that come into a church are bringing their own pain, their own woundedness, they're lashing out, and they found someone, and oftentimes the pastor is the most vulnerable target. What happens is, and this is also illustrated in Genesis chapters 2, 3, and 4, is something called in uh, Christian counseling, it's called recreation. Mm -hmm. Recreation is an attempt to win uh, acceptance and love from someone in your life as an adult who mirrors someone who did not give you acceptance and love when you were a child. The result of this is, is two things happen. First of all, sometimes the person who's recreating is looking for someone not to gain just their acceptance and love, but to punish that person for not giving them acceptance and love when they were a child. Now, there's no connection. Mm -hmm. They don't catch the fact that the person they're attempting to punish in adulthood has no similarity with the person that they've, they've looked for as acceptance and love as a child. They don't catch that. We don't mm -hmm. do that. What we do do unconsciously in attempting to recreate is we look for someone who's just like that person that we had in our lives as a child or didn't have. As right. an example, sometimes we didn't get acceptance and love from a father or a mother because they weren't there. So what do we do as an adult? We look for a perfect father or mother to give us acceptance. And if that person does not give us all the acceptance we think we will need, we have a tendency to do one of a couple of things. One of them is to disregard them, but more intensely among the antagonists, the person I call the hero persecutor, that person will actually attack that person, trying to punish them mm -hmm. for the sins of the past that never really occurred except in the mind of the antagonist. And so people, in an attempt to recreate literally can go from church to church to church looking for someone who's going to fill that void of the missing father or mother or the father or mother who did not give enough acceptance. And the result is eventually that person finds someone like that, and over a period of time, the attack will begin. And initially, very subtly, very simply with value judgments, later on, more intense things. And eventually, the pastor or missionary can be forced out of ministry or even brought to a situation in which they're experiencing incredible, intense depression and are unable to serve a ministry any longer. Yeah, and, and, uh, and what's so confusing often to the pastor, he's, he's saying, what in the world happened here? I, I don't even know what I did wrong. It would have been easier, I think we mentioned this earlier, uh, and, I, and I say this tongue-in-cheek, it would have been easier if I had stolen money or I had committed adultery or done, you know, or killed someone because then it's like, yeah, I did. That's why they're, <laughs> I'm being attacked the way I am. 
Um, but what's really helpful here to me, and I, I hope pastors and, and missionaries as well, or church leaders will, will be encouraged with this, that when they are being criticized or, uh, or even attacked, um, and, and what, this was helpful to me, and, and um, I, there were times where, of course, you have to also look at what's being said. Okay, is there any truth to this? You know, bring that before several others, before the Lord. I keep hearing this. Is there some truth? Start there. You know, it's the it's the log in your own eye, mm-hmm. but but oftentimes it's it's not, and it's helpful to be able to say, uh, you know, this person that continues to be an antagonist, uh, I'm not the problem. They're the problem. They're coming with their own issues, their own woundedness, and I I just happen to be the next person on the path of their of their agenda, and uh, that helped to have that kind of perspective helps, doesn't it? To well, that's the first, see, yeah. the first of a three-pronged approach at, at healing. Okay. Uh, the first approach is to understand where the nature of the problem is. In other words, it's not that my sermons are too long. It's not that I dress funny or don't dress appropriately. It's not that my, uh, even the choice of words in the pulpit are offensive to someone. That's not the issue. The issue is that person. That's the first part of the healing. And as you have mentioned, it is very important that we take the log out of our own eyes. Is there a problem? But when they are talking about value judgments, that is a right. that's a red flag to show that what's happening has nothing to do with the sin of the pastor or missionary. Right. It has to do with the recreative needs of the person who's attacking. So it's always the background. Value judgments are silly. I mean, if I come to you, Mitch, and say mm-hmm. I don't like a I don't like the fact that you have a beard or don't have a beard. That's a silly thing. Mm-hmm. And the reality is if I were ever to criticize you for that, that's dead giveaway. Yeah, and, that's and, and it can be – yeah, and, and I think a, a other common kinds of things pastors face is, is uh, you know, you, you don't say hi to me. Uh, you didn't shake my hand. And, and that triggers something in the person, and they look for the next thing, you know, and it, uh, it, it does build. Um, before we talk a, a little bit about what you refer to as the silence of the lamb, uh, just to bring some balance to this conversation, there there are pastors who are persecutors themselves. There are pastors who are in position, shepherding others, who have their own pain, their own wounds. They're looking for people to lash out at. They might be angry at God. Uh, talk a little bit about that. What, uh, you know, someone is bringing his own dysfunction, looking for a church where maybe he can unconsciously re- repeat those abuses that he's experienced. Reflect a little bit more on that. Well, first I would share that we have discovered over the years that uh, the possibility of a leader being abusive and being a persecutor is much more likely in one, some cultures over another. As an example, mm-hmm. in Asian cultures, right? you grew up in Asia, you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about, oh, yeah. because of oh, yeah. tribal structure, because of Confucian values, reality is, is uh, persecutors can gain positions of leadership relatively quickly, and they are usually never challenged. So there's a perfect opportunity for persecutors to become apparent in the leadership structures and Asian missionary and, and ministry structures. But uh, the reason this happens is exactly the same reason that a person attacks a pastor. A person who is of great need to gain some recognition from people, because you see the bottom line is, is we're valuing ourselves, we're finding value on the basis of what we do. How do we know if we have value on the basis of what we do? And the answer is, we gain the recognition of others. We gain the approval of others. Mm. How do we gain the approval of others? Well, first of all, we can do an absolutely perfect job and keep doing more and more of a perfect job, but that's virtually impossible. The bottom line, the reason or the way we find a way to gain the approval and acceptance of others is to gain control of others. If I control you, you can't say I have no value because you do what mm. I say. And one of the ways you give me, I gain your the control of you is to make certain you're always complimenting or at least obeying what I say. So <clears throat> people in ministry can often find a ready vehicle to gain the approval of others. And these are people who are largely those who did not gain enough acceptance and love as a child. They will try to gain that acceptance and love as an adult. And oftentimes it will happen in ministry. It can happen with pastors. Frankly, in Asia, we see it very frequently with mission leaders And also, we see in certain cultures in Asia, and I think it's fair to say Chinese and Koreans, Mm -hmm. we find this structure so much so strong that these people can become very, very abusive toward those who are in their ministry team or 
even the whole congregation. Well, what, what do you say to a pastor hearing this, or maybe an elder who hears this and say, that sounds like my pastor, or even the pastor himself might be saying, I have these tendencies myself. How, how do you shift the course here? How, how do you start the change? Uh, first of all, you mentioned it, it's Luke 6.42, take the log out of your own eye first. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at your own pastor, and if your concern about that pastor is a value judgment, once again, if it's a value, not a sin issue, then the reality is, is usually the problem is your own. If indeed there is some mm, serious, a, a biblically defined sin issue that is coming, becoming apparent, clearly evident, then the reality is, is the, the uh, uh, passages in Matthew 18 and 1 Timothy mm-hmm. 5 need to be applied toward correcting that pastor because indeed that person may have a problem. The issue has to be determined on the basis of whether or not the criticism is a value judgment or a sin issue. Mm-hmm. If it's a value judgment, usually the person who's concerned about their pastor has a problem in recreation. They don't even know it's there. But if they explore these matters very carefully about their own background, they'll discover something about the pastor that reminds them of something in the past. As an example, you said the person who says, well, you didn't shake my hand. Well, who didn't shake their hand in the past? Mm. How does that mirror something that took, took a place in the person's life before? See, that's not a sin. Failing to shake my hand is not a sin. It may be a, a lapse in judgment on the part of the person who's the pastor who needs to shake the person's hand, but it's not a sin issue. We have to wait for those clearly defined, biblically defined sin issues to appear. And when those occur, and they do occur, because a person who's addicted to proving their value on the basis of what they can do, will discover that eventually the need will grow as time goes on. It doesn't get better, it gets worse. Eventually the sin issue will appear. What are the most common symptoms that you see, particularly here in the States, because this is where most of our audience is, um, where you know, others can, can say, yeah, we're seeing that this is not a value judgment, it's sin issues, or even for a pastor himself. I mean, wh- one that I can think of is that he's, he gets extremely impatient or angry at people. What are, some other, what are some other ways that that shows? Well, you hit the big one. The big one is uncontrolled anger. Mm-hmm. Because the question is, why does anger occur? And the answer is the anger often occurs because that person is not receiving the recognition they believe they deserve. But any other number of clear sin issues can become evident. Uh, As an example, we know today that there's a profound need of of people. Well, one church I know of actually uh, heard that the pastor was involved in pornography and they sent an expert in to look at their computer of the pastor's office. They discovered, indeed, it was true. That's a big issue, of course. It's a yeah. huge issue. But it's not just pornography. It's anything, any sexual sins, any monetary sins, uh, a need to be in control of uh, money matters is a big issue in a pastor's life. Anything which is clearly defined as a sin issue. And I would make certain that it's got to be clearly, biblically defined as a sin issue. Otherwise, it likely is still a value judgment. Yeah, yeah that's good. Yeah. And withdrawal would be one as well. It's, a, again, it's a symptom. It's not the sin itself, but it's it's a reaction to, uh, you know, a pastor gets angry, he starts to withdraw, he isolates himself. I think that when, and particularly if he's not normally like that, I think that's a, a cue for the elders to say, hey, something's going on here. We need to talk to the pastor, find out what's going on in his life. And and uh, and then I think the sin will be identified in that. But I, I guess withdrawal isolation is is a sin because you're you're allowing your angry to dictate your anger to dictate your your behavior. You're you're not taking your responsibility seriously of shepherding people, being around people. You you talk about well, this. Um, yeah, I, go ahead. Would, yeah, if you I have would, more to say about that, I, please. I was going against that because the degree of caring and valuing and and taking care of people. Um, you know, that may or may not be a sin issue, but I would say that's, that's a guarded one. But yeah. in the reactive stage, there are four stages of a, conf- a confrontational process. And this, the, I mentioned these in the second book, The Antidote. But mm-hmm. the last one is called the reactive stage. That's when a pastor withdraws, shows mm-hmm. a great deal of anger. That's when a person becomes reactive. At that point, help is desperately needed. 
But it doesn't necessarily mean that a pastor has done something that is sinful. It only means they are reacting to a circumstance which is beyond control. And I might add this. I don't care how stable a person is emotionally. If you're attacked enough by enough people over enough time, you will become reactive. Nobody Absolutely. is above mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So in other words, I would say don't look at the pastor when a pastor withdraws. Look at the circumstances around the pastor. That's good. Causing to withdraw. That's good. Very good. Yeah, I like that. That's that gives some good clarity on on that. Um, yeah, and and to and to be willing, you know, for elders to have the courage to approach the pastor and and, yes. and talk about it, and for the pastor to be vulnerable and not shut off, you know, and and, and I guess that's what my point was. Then then it becomes a sin. You're not you're not receiving the right care and love from others. But I love how you, you look at the whole circumstance. What's going on here that the pastor's reacting to? What is it about our climate that has is leaving that kind of impact or imprint on, on our pastor. We need to address that too. That's good. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about the silence of the lamb. <laughs> um, what is going on here where the, these are maybe good average, you know, people that are part of the life of the church. Uh, you, you talk about that, how they're enabling the, the hero persecutor and they might be doing it for their own, uh, you know, reasons. And they might be even be looking for a church where they can play that role. I thought that was fascinating. Expand on that a little bit. The problem is, once again, that of uh, recreation. If a person grew up in a dysfunctional family background in which there was a persecutor within the family structure, could be a father, could be a sibling, Mm -hmm. could be a mother. If there's a person who's like that, one of the ways that people, children, adjust to those circumstances that they cannot control the abusive situation is they themselves simply enable. Mm-hmm. And how do they enable? They enable by never confronting, never complaining, always letting the situation go on. And as the result of allowing things to go on that are dysfunctional within the family structure, they get approval, they get acceptance. When they grow up, recreation requires that they will do the same thing again. The need to gain that acceptance on the basis of the ability to enable a dysfunctional person doesn't go away. The way a, a, an antagonist finds these people is in what I call the, uh, the silent stage of confrontation or an attack in which the attack is really going on only in the mind of the antagonist or with one or two chosen friends. And they say to this person, did you see the pastor do this? Did you see the missionary do that? Oh, yes, I did. I did. Mm. Now, that person has learned in their childhood to listen and accept and because when they do that, they get the acceptance of the antagonist. And so that little web, some call it a cartel, some call it a system, <laughs> slowly grows as the result of these whispers. Proverbs 26.20 says, where there is no wood, the fire goes out. Where there is no whisper, contention quiets down. Mm. Uh, this is clearly evidence of that particular situation, that the cartel slowly grows until what I call the public stage in which more and more people are talking about it and value judgments are then being um, used to attack the pastor or the leader. So it comes from the same exact field, that yeah. of recreation and childhood. And that cycle can be broken. I, I, I was fascinated in a couple of the churches I pastored where there were large families and one person emerged as the as the uh, oppressor or the persecutor and, and the whole family would just you know, kind of enable it. And, and mm-hmm. it's almost like they're representing the family, you know, the whole family is, uh, is with them, but he's the voice for them. But I, in one church, I was, I was uh, really impressed with how uh, a man who was generally fairly decent, easygoing guy, but he was, he had allowed things to build up and he was going to, he was going to uh, do something rather unusual in how he addressed the problem. I think he was going to interrupt a business meeting or so and read out the riot act and and the family said to him no you are not doing that we we will keep you from going to church if you if you do that and uh and that, and he repented uh this this guy just felt very sorrowful told the family he was sorry that you know i think the leadership found out about it that's how it that's what really should be happening if we're looking you know for a change of course here in in these things 
that's a relatively functional family. Yeah, yeah. It's not yeah. that there aren't problems. It aren't that people don't have their concerns, and but the family prevented rather than enabled yeah, a situation yeah. which could be valid. Yeah, you know, th- th- I just thought of this too. We need to, we need to be realistic here that it's, I mean, you know, if, especially if you're a member of a church, uh, there are going to be things you feel should be done better. And it, it's legitimate to be concerned about things, but there, so we're not saying here, you know, you got to be quiet, never stir things, never challenge things, but there's a right way to do it. So what, what would be right. some guiding principles to, let's say you're, you know, let's say, for example, your, your pastor is sloppy in his preaching, you know, and he's, it, it's just obvious he's not spending time on the word, which that kind of bumps the, you know, if he's not being responsible to his calling, that is kind of a sin issue in a way. But, but you know, people, a few people are just, you know, we're not hearing the word, we're not hearing the gospel. Uh, and rather than stir things up and, and try to, you know, create a coup, what's a healthy way to process something like that? That's an elder matter. And different <clears throat> churches have different polity structures, of course. But um, elders are responsible not only to uh, supervise ministry, but also to do ministry. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I mentioned that in Chapter 17 of the book Toxic Church. Elders need to be involved in ministry so that they can properly evaluate what's happening in the pulpit. Uh, also, in First Timothy 5, you've got the, that clear instruction, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Mm-hmm. So if I've got a concern that I'm not hearing the gospel in the pulpit, you know something? I have nobody to talk to except the Lord about this. And the reality is, is that we are somewhat limited because of the fact that that's an elder matter and not a, a personal matter for each individual. What if the elders are not seeing it or doing anything about it and members are going to the elders? And there, it's not, it, there, nothing is being done. Yeah, I would say in that particular situation, now it's going to vary. If there are going to be intensities of the, of the problem and various situations in which people who are involved in the church, how involved are they in the church structure? So if <clears throat> several people go to an elder and have a complaint about the lack of saying the gospel being preached in the pulpit and the mm-hmm. elders do nothing about it, then the people who've made the complaint have a couple of choices. And among those choices are take it to the elders again, and the other choice is to leave the church. Hmm. My suggestion in that situation is rather than cause a lot of difficulty within the church because the elders are not behaving as elders should, it's probably better to leave the church because you have a dysfunctional structure within the church in which the elders are not holding the pastor accountable the way they Hmm. should. We don't have the power if we're not elders to take yeah. care of that situation. Yeah. It's just not yeah. biblically there. Yeah, so and the elders rep the elders represent the the folks, and if they don't, uh, <clears throat> you know, hear or take seriously the concern of the folks, then the 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 average church member is has reached his threshold on what he can do. You're saying, and that's uh, yeah, I I agree with you. You don't want to you don't want to be ugly and stir things up. If if you know, you know, I think one of the general rules I live by, and I it work. When I do work with pastors, I, or even elders, I'll say, you know, think what is the possible, what are the possible outcomes here? Can you, can you envision mm-hmm. an outcome that would be healthy here? If not, if all you're doing is just wanting to, you know, lay out your concern and, and, and you've tried to before and it's never worked, that, that might be a, an indicator that it's, it's time for you to move on. It's a tough well, place. It's a tough my place wife and I have been in that situation. I'm 71. Mm-hmm. Uh, 46 years in ministry. So we go to a church. Guess what? I'm going to know <laughs> a little bit about how to do ministry. Mm-hmm. And because of that, it's very easy for me to become critical of those around me who are doing ministry. Uh, now, I've got to guard against that. But what we have discovered, and we were in a situation not, not unlike the one you described, where we realized we'd talked to the elders, there was no response, it's time for us to leave because I'm not about to become an antagonist of a pastor. That's the one thing I stand against. Yeah. Yeah. So, and your ministry uh, is all in other about, words, that, that's yeah. Yeah. Taking that's care good. of pastors. I don't want to become a, an antagonist. So we left the church. Hmm. Now we didn't, we didn't tell anybody why we just left. The reality is, is that for people, all of us, and I would say myself included, we've got to guard against being critical of people because we don't see them doing the job the way we would do it. And frankly, if you've been in ministry for 46 years, you got a way of doing ministry and you always think it's better than everybody else's way, but who am I to judge? It's only in the matter of a particular, well, you mentioned one, someone's not proclaiming the gospel. That's a serious matter. Yeah. But if the elders aren't going to take care of it, 
I don't have the value to do, I don't have the ability to correct it. And incidentally, I don't think I want to be an elder in a church simply because of the fact that I might become critical. But it's time for us to leave if it becomes something unbearable. The problem might be for me is that I simply can't tolerate. And that's a lack of love on my part, incidentally. So uh, the question is, should I leave? Should I stay? And if I can't correct a situation that I see as being untenable, then probably better that I leave rather than become an antagonist. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for that good answer. Uh, let's end with this on, on a positive note. Uh, I, I love the emphasis at the end of your book about the pastor, as he's allowed to, as he's able to, perhaps from longevity, from being able to slowly, uh, you know, work through, uh, there's the elders are, have been handling things biblically and maybe marginalizing the, the antagonist within the church. But, but you talk about uh, a pastor being able to raise the standard to, to teach the ideal of what biblical leadership is about and then, and then raise leaders who are qualified. Cause that's the key is to, is to have really yes, it is. qualified mm-hmm. leaders in the church. Uh, so how do you do this if, if existing leadership is not healthy and a pastor uh, is, is handling things okay? He, he believes God's led him to stay where he is, but he knows he's got a lot of work to do. Sure. Uh, and I know your second book will address a lot of this, but, uh, but to, to kind of wrap up this podcast, how would, you, how would you describe that process of changing the climate? Um. There's not there's not an easy answer because the because it involves a great deal of time. Mm-hmm. In chapter 19 of Toxic Church, I have the story of a man who was able to uh, overcome repetitive attacks and see a church really be blessed by God. The answer is is well, first of all, there's three prongs in healing. We first of all need to understand where attacks come from. That's in Toxic Church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The second thing is to understand why we tolerate them. See, if, if I'm a person who needs the approval of people, I'm going to have difficulty confronting others. Why is that? That's in the antidote, the second book. And the third step is to apply the antidote, which means simply to understand a simple truth. My value doesn't come from what I do. My value becomes, comes because Jesus loves me, and that's it. And in the antidote, we explain how to personalize that particular process of applying the our steps such a way that we can become healthy leaders. I can't be a healthy leader if I'm afraid every time I correct someone, I'm going to lose their approval. If I have the approval of Jesus, guess what? I don't need anybody else's approval. Yeah, yeah. And incidentally, the other benefit of that is if, I ha- if I'm living in the approval of Jesus, other people can't hurt me. Mm-hmm. So these things are very important. First of all, becoming an effective leader, then transferring that to the leaders who are around us becomes critically important. How does that occur? A process of discipleship. Years and years of discipleship. Making a disciple isn't something that Jesus did in two or three weeks or in a Sunday morning sermon. He ate, lived, and slept Mm -hmm. with his disciples for three plus years. That's what has to happen. Now, in our world, we practically can't have people separate themselves from their jobs or families, although some can and should. But, uh, and incidentally, the disciples, I don't believe, separated themselves from their families. But we yeah, can't yeah. expect, no, I mean, they, they had their believing wives along, First, mm-hmm. first Corinthians 9, 5. But uh, what I would share is it's a process of discipleship involving the same principles which I've been sharing with you. In other words, the process of learning the antidote needs to be multi-level, applied to those throughout our ministry, and as that occurs, health will come. I, I, I would like to add one other factor that uh, you didn't directly ask this, but I think it, it's indirectly implied. When a pastor or leader is attacked because of value issues, he can't talk to anybody because it seems too, too trivial, and also if he talks mm-hmm. to anybody... He becomes defensive, and people begin to talk about what others are saying about him, thus enabling the person who attacks him. But guess who he can talk to or she can talk to? Wife or husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They get all this stuff dumped on them, and the results are eventually a wife may withdraw because she sees her husband being attacked, and she can't do anything to help him, and she sees no answer, and she will emotionally withdraw from him yeah. to a certain extent. Dr. Lewis McBurney at uh, Marble Retreat shared this with me. He's now with the Lord. 
he shared that one of the primary causes of immorality in the pulpit is that a woman withdraws from her husband because he's being attacked, and suddenly there's a new woman in the picture who's willing to listen to every complaint. Mm-hmm. And she says immediately there's a, an ingredient set for immorality, which he treats quite regularly, or did treat at Marble Retreat. Marble Retreat's still a still strong ministry. Yeah. Pastors in transition, Mark Fitter shared with me a simple statistic. I didn't even know this till a few days ago. 45% of pastors' children, not just tr- pastors from troubled churches, 45% of pastors' children end up in long-term therapy as adults. That's mm. astounding to me. Yeah. So I would share with you that it's incredibly important that a pastor create a discipleship structure in which leaders are being trained over a period, not weeks or months, but years, and never make the mistake of taking someone into an elder's board simply because they haven't got a good business. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Seen Timothy that too says, much. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't lay hands on someone too quickly. This is, yeah. it takes time. So this is training structure to get into a board. Now this takes the fellow in chapter 19 of toxic church. I'm trying to remember the number of the years before he began to see a healthy structure. He's been there over 30 years. I still know the man, mm-hmm. uh, known for, for a long time, but I'm going to guess it was probably 15 to 20 years before he began to see a noticeable change in his church. That's wow. a long yeah, time. Yeah, that is a long time. Yeah. yeah. But, but your, your point is he, he is healthy and, and I would, I would assume too, his family was healthy because if you, if your family, I mean, I think, I think one of the ways I, I really believe this strongly that one of the ways to, uh, to handle uh, these sort of things within the church uh, is is for the marriage to be for the attention to be also on the marriage that the pastor is nurturing that. I mean, when you're talking about the wife who withdraws and someone else listens to the pastor, that doesn't excuse him, nor is that putting the blame on the wife. Um, but it's well, a it's a great it's a symptom that he has been ignoring, likely been ignoring the right. If a pastor or leader is healthy. If they're sharing with a husband or wife a problem, it comes across two ways. Here's a problem, I can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Or here's a problem and I don't care about it because Jesus loves me. Mm-hmm. That's a mm-hmm. big difference. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. yeah. If I'm content in Jesus loving me, I can tell you about this problem, but it's mm-hmm. not going to affect me. And guess what? It won't affect you either because I'm not allowing you to be burdened with my problem. Yeah. So marriages stay healthy. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that, that I describe it as what kept my sanity and particularly the, the last church I was talking about was the, just this fact that God, God will never do this to me. He'll never accuse me like this. You know, Christ, t- Christ was, he, he took it for me. You know, there's even the gospel speaks in times like this where I'm being accused. Well, Christ was accused. He, he, he took this. I can go to him for, for comfort and he understands. And, and also the other piece uh, that, uh, that helped me a lot was, was also to say my family would never do this to me. You know, I'm, I might've had three or four people who were critical, antagonistic, and uh, well, God would never do that to me. My family loved me too, and they would never do that to me. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, if, it, if family do start doing that to you, then the pastor needs to get some counseling and get help right away. Because, you know, if this starts to fracture the family, you won't believe, Chris, how many times I counsel people, and you probably have found this too, and they come to you to help for help because of church uh, problems. And then within a couple of weeks, your marriage, you're doing marriage counseling. Yes. Uh, that, that could be the original problem. Usually not, but it's now become the problem. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, I love, I love how our conversation here is leading to that. Uh, you know, the healthiness of the pastor's own theology of, of God's love for him. Uh, but also, uh, you know, make, making sure your family's okay is, uh, is huge in this. Um, great emphasis on discipleship for, uh, for healing. And so how would you, how would you sum up your, your second book, The Antidote? How would you sum it up? The Antidote up contains, here? the toxic church has the first step, recognizing the cause. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Antidote recognizes uh, or helps to recognize why we let, let it happen. You know, I love to tell, the, tell Asians this, and they look at me with... Uh, Wide open eyes. You always have power over your attacker because you have the power to leave. Now, that's very difficult in some shame-based cultures for them to leave. But I said, you have that power. Hmm. And if you will not allow a shame for leaving a ministry to affect you because Jesus loves you first, you can leave and you have power over the attacker. Mm -hmm. So that's the second part of the antidote is why we let ourselves be attacked. 
And the third part is how to um, understand our, only f our own family backgrounds, which have affected us to not only accept antagonism, but sometimes to be an antagonist, mm -hmm. and how to repent of that and change it. Mm. Strictly biblical, right out mm. of the Bible. Wow. We develop a process where people can do this individually. In the third book, which will be out in a couple of weeks, you haven't seen it yet, of course, is the antidote at work. It's case studies of how this mm -hmm. all works in Hall. Oh, wonderful. Together. Good, yeah. good. Well, we'll make these um, resources available on the website. And you did a great job laying this out. We, uh, uh, we covered a lot here. And appreciate your ministry, Chris. And thank you for taking the time to thank talk you, with me today about this. Thank you. Could, could I ask one thing? If Absolutely. anybody who hears your podcast is hurting and needs help or they feel a call to help others in ministry who need help, please contact me at our website, toxicchurch.org. Excellent. Good, good. All right. Thank you, Chris. Thank you bye so bye much, now. Mitch. I appreciate the time. Bye-bye. <laughs> well, there you have it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Before You Quit podcast. If you have any questions or comments about anything that we've talked about today, you can email me at mitch at beforeyouquit.us. I'd also encourage you to go to our website, look at the resources there. You can order the Toxic Church and the Antidote uh, books there. And uh, so, yeah, until next time, stay encouraged and be courageous because serving Jesus is worth all that hard stuff that comes with it. And remember what we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 57 through 58. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So until next time, stay encouraged.